Welcome to the Redemptification Podcast. I am excited today to have two of my favorite and most painfully close people in my life. I've got Ty and Nelson here. And you're talking about two guys that you couldn't convince you were right if you wanted to, unless you actually are right. And uh, Nelson's love language is arguing. So he'll, if I say a subject, he'll tell me how it's wrong. So if that happens today, I want to ask you to please forgive us on the Redemptification Podcast for allowing different perspectives to make it seem like we're arguing when we're really just with great passion talking to one another. So welcome Nelson as the guest and Ty is my co-host and uh, the smartest young man I know in uh, the things he does. I'm grateful to have him here. Welcome guys. Well, I'm glad to be here and um, yeah, I think Second to only Nelson, I think I I get the most heat from John. So there's plenty of plenty of heat here. Everybody else gets the the bubbly fun John. <laughs> yeah, Nelson they sales get, pitch. We get, we, get a, we get a lot more animation, so it's fun. Um, glad to be here. Yeah, this is an exciting conversation. I I think I think guys, if I can, I, I'm going to set the stage and kind of open up. Um, you know, it's funny we we were we at you know, our uh, in our consulting work, we do what we call intensives, and we were in an intensive in, in a small town in Camden, South Carolina. We've been talking about this um, this concept really of we we've seen hospitality done in unique ways, um, and we've seen all kinds of varieties of overnight stay. We've seen venues, we've seen unique food and beverage. Um, and when we've also seen the power of those things put together, um, you know, um, but we really didn't have language for it the way that we wanted to until Nelson, um, who has spent so much time in Italy, really kind of put us on this model in Italy called Diffused, what we've started to call Diffused Hospitality. So now I'd like for you to kind of just give us your you know, your experience in Italy and just kind of walk us through that experience and where you've learned. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a big deal in Italy. There's a, there's a couple things that have conspired to make hospitality work different there. First, anyone who knows anything about Italy knows that it is the most mountainous country on earth. It's not actually a peninsula. It's technically an isthmus. So it's literally a set of mountains from a couple of uh, Teutonic plates that have crashed together. And that's what the whole country is. And so because of this, they don't have a lot of flat land. And this has meant that you have these little pockets with incredibly diverse ecology and you grow all these different things. Um, but it's also meant that building large buildings is very difficult. In Italy, you won't see a lot of skyscrapers. Um, it's very seismically active there. And so all of this kind of conspired together to create a situation where the Italian government in the 70s and 80s was really trying to push tourism kind of on the the tail of this Dolce Vita and Sofia Loren and, and that whole thing. Um, but they couldn't build these big hotels and they couldn't attract the capital. So what they did was they went and they said, hey, we're going to heavily incentivize every single winery in the whole in the whole country to have a bed and breakfast. They call them uh, relays. It's a French model. And then what we're going to do is we're going to start this agro-turismo concept. Well, this worked so well that um, in the 70s, there was a little town in Tuscany called San Felice, and they're famous for growing this 
this grape there. For those of y'all who don't know, my expertise is in Italian wine. Uh, they have a very rare grape there called Pugnatello. Um, that means little fist. It, it's this incredible story. They saved it. It was down to one vine. And this noble family, through Mussolini and through, uh, you know, the unification of the Italian states and everything, had held on to this little town. And they wanted to move into the city. And there was an English insurance company that actually bought the whole thing as one big asset from them. And so what they got was a little tiny town in Tuscany with a winery that was producing a whole bunch and with little restaurants and a whole bunch of people living there. Well, as it depopulated, what they started doing was using it for corporate retreats. And then eventually, they would stick a room in one building, a room in another building, and eventually the whole town turned over, and they kept the winery running, and they kept the, the industry there, but they actually turned this whole town into a diffused little model. So instead of going somewhere... Um, and staying, you know, in a big block of rooms, you might stay in the attic of the church that's been made into a room, and someone else might stay in the old nobleman's house, and somebody else might stay in the old cobbler's shop. And what it does is it allows you to preserve the culture and fabric of these areas. The other thing it does is it allows you to um, really have an incredibly high level of experience with existing structures. You know, these days, it, it's really gotten prohibitively expensive to build anything, but especially hospitality has really gone through the roof. And uh, and so what a lot of little cities in Italy have done is they've been able to build up an inventory of rooms that have a backstop, right, where they can go and rent these things out as apartments. They're just houses, but they're able to have this overnight stay component and you're feeding things where, you know, famously in Italy, there's something like 150 villages with less than a thousand people that have at least one Michelin star restaurant in them. That's a big deal. And they're feeding that through this ability to have this overnight stay. So one thing we realized through this play, we started out realizing through our own experience here in Opelika that restaurants move people. Food and beverage is powerful. You get someone to go to the worst neighborhood in town for their barbecue, we can, we can move small places in a major way with good food. And as this has evolved, and that was right, and we are still doing that, and I think that's still like the minimum viable plan for a town is to get one good place to eat. But when you bolt on overnight stay, and when you bolt on celebratory events, the sum of those three parts is, is greater than, than I could initially imagine. It's not, it's not in multiples, it's exponential. And you can share back-end services, People who use the event space can stay in the hotel rooms and can go to the food. The food and beverage can serve the catering. It allows us to give a destination in even people's mind to a place. I mean, imagine if you got a fabulous restaurant in a city and you go there and you you, you go and say, hey, we're going to go have this great meal. Well, you may have a great lunch or a great dinner, but if you can't stay, you're leaving. And if you got to go out by the interstate and stay at a a Holiday Inn Express or something, you're not probably going to see it as the same experience as if you go downtown and stay in this diffused manner, scattered hotel, horizontal hotel, or as we're calling it, diffused hotel in existing structures, you actually get to be a, 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 a temporary citizen instead of just a visitor. You know, I think just for the listeners, I mean, from a from a real estate perspective, it's so easy to start seeing assets as formulaic, you know, and 
just because I know that there's going to be listeners on here, probably in the hotel space, right? And, you know, we, we tend to, and I think we want to frame this conversation around the idea of what, what is the right expression of hospitality in, in small to medium-sized historic towns. Like what could be... 100,000 people or less. Yeah, and we know that, you know, in the, the hotel industry, there's a lot happening right now just overall in the hospitality industry. There, there's this real pull for more experiential, um, destination-driven hospitality, um, you know, but in the typical kind of uh, classes of hotels, you know, from economy to budget, you know, mid-scale, upscale, um, you know, the hotel industry has, has done a great job of classifying. And, you know, if we were going to look on a CoStar or SD, you know, SDR was bought by CoStar and look at a report and you look at how, you know, the industry kind of classifies, I'm not sure our conversation really fits, right? Mm-hmm. Because, um, like, like Nelson said, the thing that what's really attracted to me around this, this idea is that, and just thinking aspirationally is, is that there's a model here that really could be uh, transcendent for small towns because we could really create this this experience, I think, and, and have these economic viable models that really allow a transient person to come into a place, into an authentic experience and not feel transient. Right. I mean, that's, that's right. the diffuse model, right? Where absolutely, where you know, they, yeah, you want to, and, and yeah, and that. I, I want to like tell y'all. So, two things we need to realize first, in Italy, especially, unless you're in a major city, there are no historic hotels. You know, there are some left in large. I mean, if you're in Milan, there are some historic hotels. There are no historic hotels in San Felice, or I was recently in Gattinara, there's no historic hotels there. So, I want to be careful to not make this sound like this is a replacement for these historic things because authenticity is important. Like if our town wouldn't have lost them, we had three large, incredible hotels in our downtown. And if we had them, I mean, you can absolutely bet your bottom dollar we'd be building that thing out as a block of rooms. And even in San Felice, they've taken the nobleman's house and it's a, you know, seven or eight couples can stay there at a time. So they do have larger chunks. More, this is about, First, um, creating a model that doesn't require that and require new construction. But second, I think we need to address the the thing around the hotel business, and this is in all all big businesses that um, do something long enough it becomes rote. You know, for any of y'all Thomas Coons fans, this is a paradigm. A paradigm is a set of arbitrary tasks that we decide to do, and that becomes the way we do it. And now it's it's sacrosanct, and we always have to do it this way just because we've been doing it. And then someone comes along and they break the paradigm when they say, well, why do we do that? And could we do it a different way? Um, I Edward, think Edward Land did it to the camera. Steve sure. Jobs did it to the phone. They broke paradigms that said a phone is, a camera is. Right. And so what we're saying is a hotel is. And, and, and we knew all these pieces existed disconnected. What I'm beginning to see, even in the more a more clear way, is that it can revolutionize the way we view historic downtowns that have a, a fabric of existing buildings that are sitting unutilized or underutilized and that it's not just something that's okay and a, a kind of a way to save it, but it can be an economic, social, and spiritual driver that's, that's, that's unmatched. And flexible, too. I mean, if your town, 
if this happens and let's say, let's say it goes wild and your town does great and somebody wants to, you know, someone comes in and puts you in an incredible class A resort right outside of town, you might take some of those and turn them back into apartments. You have that option, but what it really does, and for the people in the hotel industry and any of y'all who follow the airline industry, this is going to hit your heart. It saves you from the slavery that you're, you've been into business travelers. Business travel is dead. I mean, it's down. I can't remember what it was. I was just reading the um, an airline industry blog. The in, business travel on airlines is down over 90% in the last 10 years. And it's killing those guys because they built their business on it. It's the same thing for hotels. The reason you see this stratification of why is there a Hilton Garden Inn, a Hilton Doubletree, a and all of these different ones is because those were matching the companies that were sending these people out. The incidental travelers were not really their business. What this does is it gives you an opportunity to not be hooked to that. It's a desirable product that transcends a market like that. Yeah, I think I think a, an, an interesting way to look at this is that, you know, if you really believe that all there's capital in all small towns, like there's there's identity to be revealed, there's there's interesting, there's there's even industry, you know. All cool. small towns have their own unique. Well, you know, tell them about the Joe's story. Crab Shack. The Joe's Crab the Joe's Shack? Crab Shack example. This is great. Oh, um, why don't you tell them? You okay. Your on that. So so Ty and I went on a trip recently, and if I said, "Hey, I'm in a resort town. I've got a company. Uh, we're about." 10, 12 million dollars a year, depending on the year. I've got a hundred employees, uh, and we deal in manufacturing, distribution, assembly, and then we also have a hospitality component. People would be like, Oh yeah, you're impressive. And then if I said, Yeah, that company is the Joe's Crab Shack in Branson, Missouri, it's not so impressive, right? <laughs> and we forget, I mean, if you have a Chick-fil-A or a McDonald's, there are millions of dollars going through your town all that the time. That are going away from your town. I mean, every dollar in GDP in your town spent can have a 26 times multiple when it hits. And so as Ty's kind of explored, and I'd like him to kind of double click on this a little bit, what if this is the new industry in a way to small towns? What if it can provide not the same thing, but but a, a like kind impact? Yeah, so, so all you urban planner types out there are going to probably, you know, Write letters to Nelson. Yeah, right. Yeah, but I I took one elective in college. It was a it was it was an urban economics class, and one of the things I took away from that is that there was this, and I can't remember the name of it, but basically it was a it was a formula that said, you know, hey, you can almost for every manufacturing job you can you know every manufacturing job is going to produce this many service jobs, this many you know other needs and services that that come from that, and so. Obviously, there's, you know, from an economic development standpoint, a small town, that's why we chase smokestacks. And that's been, you know, that's been the way of economic development for small towns for, for a long time. I mean, even Opelika, I don't know. I mean, we're still, we still in that. The majority of our, I think, of their dollars flying internationally, seeing Korea. Korean and, yeah. Yeah, just, Which, by the way, thank God, I mean, it saved our town. It's when right. every other this is not either or. It's not either yes, or, but I do think there's a larger. I mean, I do think there's a conversation that we should have. Is said that is hospitality an exportable good for small towns? Hmm. Oh, yeah. I know it's not a good, but I think um, you know. I think it was uh, 
Is it Joe Pine who wrote the Experience Economy? I think so. Yeah, and forgive me if I got his name wrong, but you know he he's just now coming back and saying, hey, there's a there's another layer to this. There's there's also a transformation economy, and I think more people are becoming more and more aware of one their health, two where their food comes from, and I think that's what now you we need to speak to is like beyond. The diffuse hospitality story in Italy, but like you can't go to Italy and not fully appreciate what it took to put something on the plate, and and I think that's the kind of appreciation that we can bring in a small town setting because we can bring authenticity and expression and culture in a way in a small town in this format, and that's what I mean by I think it's an exportable. Oh yeah. And Good. small towns give freedom to express themselves. You know, I have a friend, uh, if y'all want to see someone interesting, you should look up my friend Butch Anthony. He's a world-renowned folk artist, exhibits with Banksy, and he lives in a town where he's from called Seal, Alabama. And Seal's got, I think, 150 people, and Butch is the only thing going there, and he's on his family land. But I asked him why he stayed, and he said, why would I go anywhere else? said, in New York and fight to get a gallery space or whatever. He said, I wanted a museum. I built my own museum here. The freedom of expression in small towns can often be a, a greenhouse for creating th- beautiful things. And I mean, everywhere has culture. I used to think that some places had culture and some places didn't. But I tell y'all, I mean, Ty and I saw this. We were in, we were in Missouri, okay, which in America has a tough road to hoe. For culture and we're there in uh, Springfield wasn't it mm-hmm. and oh my goodness we found the best little Peruvian restaurant that was super cool and funky and interesting and there are people everywhere wanting to do great things the problem is we don't often have a way for them to take that inspiration and that love and put it into action and in Italy the difference is they have fought tooth and nail to save and preserve the opportunity for these small experiences and small expressions, and in America, we've often planned our way away from it. And the power of this, guys, that it's it, a restaurant. We built them. We're able to see, build iconic restaurants in unique places, and them survive. And somebody make a a meaningful income, a, a good wage. But what we're talking about in this idea of a diffuse hospitality or resort, it can be much, much greater. And one tagline we're kind of working on here is every town is one unforgettable meal and overnight stay from being a destination. Once it happens, everything changes. And people begin to go, I had this amazing weekend in this small town. And it was, you know, we did this and we did this. So we're we're going all in for Marsh Collective, believing we're, we're staking the flag that this is the future of small town. Um, of building catalytic events in small towns. I do want to make sure today we hit a little bit of telling them if you had 80,000 square foot of buildings and you could invest this much money, this is, let's do some, because most people spend all their time talking around the numbers and don't talk about the numbers. And when they do talk about the numbers, they don't know the numbers. Yeah, I think that's good. So just to kind of get, let's, to get a little pragmatic, I mean, this is still, you know, we're still kind of provisionally talking about this, but. What, what I intuitively believe that it's not going to show up necessarily on like a, a market report, right? So I think when it comes to 
you know, if you're sitting there thinking like, wow, this might, this is an interesting conversation. How does this apply to my town? I believe that a gas tank away market from a, a, if you think about a couple, an average couple, I believe an average couple would, there's a good size market that would spend fifteen to eighteen hundred dollars for a weekend, and if you can create a very meaningful experience for that amount, and I think there's a, you know, what's interesting about like, there's a there's not uh, elasticity in an ADR average daily rate for a property like Blackberry Farms or a property that's food and beverage driven or wellness driven or there's just not, no. you know, that's, and I think that's what Nelson was talking to or alluding to earlier is that so much of our overnight stay, um, industry to date has been driven off this business traveler, which is very commoditized. Um, and so point space, you got to get in the right deals. Are you going to give deals to traveling sport teams? Like when we did our initial and guys, we started two years and years ago on our first hotel idea, which we've been through many to get to this place to actually, we're currently building rooms. But we started, Ty, and remember, there was these business segments we couldn't ignore. There was there was these these gatekeepers for leads that we couldn't ignore. The flags. What flag are you flying? And and, and all that was, was hooked into this dependability of the business traveler and points and things like that. There was so much discussion about that. And yeah, COVID so, threw a hand grenade in it. Yeah, and... So, so thinking about it from a programming standpoint, to like to John's point, you know, it's you know we we love that term that came from Maker's Mark, that term in, in intentional inefficiency. And when you think again, just from real estate and development, you know, like if we were thinking greenfield development, we we want to have an efficient program. So we think in terms of square footage, what's the most appropriate square footage and uh, and maybe a good analogy for this is, is the room we're sitting in right now, right? Because we're in a we're in a very girl power room right now. We're actually sitting in our in our broad space uh, for our wedding venue. And if you look at this on a spreadsheet, if I showed you that, hey, you know, we're going to build a three thousand square foot broad suite that's adjacent to our um, our venue, and uh, you would say, wow, that seems really really big. And, I mean, um, two, and I think well, it's not three thousand. What do we? It's probably more like eighteen hundred square feet, plus or minus here. But yeah, but it's 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 large. And I think for most people, you would say, "Wow, if that was on a programming matrix, it would be like, wow, this doesn't make sense." Well, well, one, we're in an existing building, right? So just by the nature of being an existing historic space, you're going to have inefficiency in your program. Secondly. Uh, Ash said, hey, we, we're going to build this venue to be Broad Ford. And nothing says Broad Ford more than say where this space is going to serve specifically the Broad. So it, it was very um, intentional in that it's that It's Ash's definition of hospitality. Broad, I thought of you before you got here. Your mom, your friends, the photographs, your makeup, the time you're going to spend in this room, the memories you're going to create. I have made the perfect place to celebrate you, and I thought of every detail. Oh, great example. Intentional inefficiency we just did recently, and this is one I'm passionate about. I just wrote an article about this. Hopefully, it'll be on our blog soon, but uh, we recently had a conversation. We've got, how many single-pane windows do we have in this thing? I mean, a couple hundred? 
it, it's something stupid. Anyway, we have all these single pane windows. And for those of y'all who are blessed with them, you know, single pane windows are inefficient. They leak. They have to be reglazed. They have to be painted. Uh, and so we were going to put storm windows on the front of this thing and fix it. And to her credit, I mean, that was, Ash was not doing that, right? That was, I was not an option. storm window, yes, campaign for the ease of a solid pane of low E glass. But Wash you know, it off. Yep. It's easy, squeegee it, the glazing doesn't fail. But Ash just said, she said, no way. It's not beautiful. She said, I, I said, well, we had to do a, 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 a benefit to it, and I couldn't, I couldn't get the benefit to equal the beauty. And, and isn't that the way it is? Well, and you know what? Everyone in this bright, so this, we're in a historic structure here, and there's a historic house that across the street that was built around the same time. And every single bride takes their picture through that window with that old wind, wavy window with the historic house across the street. And that moment for them so encapsulates this space so beautifully. I mean, yeah. to take that away would have been foolish. So that's, that's the thing is that, you know, we create spaces around moments. You have to be intentional to create moments, and um, and a lot of those moments have to be revealed. You know, that's the beauty of these small towns, is these authentic spaces and places, and there's character, and all the things everybody on this, that's listening to this call knows about historic structures. There's texture. Um, but with that comes, you know, inefficiency. And so when we look at the programming, we we it's funny, when we, we did so many of these these intensives and John and Nelson and, and I, we would travel to these small towns and and everywhere, anytime we walked through, we'd always say, wow, this could be a great venue space. Or wow, you know, we understand like what spaces are really best for food and beverage and restaurants and which ones aren't. And, and then you start looking at, you know, most of your typical historic downtowns that are, you know, uh, typical masonry construction, upper story residential you start looking at it and you say, well, hey, how can you start looking at that square footage and applying a programmatic model to a critical mass of overnight stay, food and beverage, and venue space to really start thinking about a over a holistic model that could be used for these assets? Let's um, do an example of like what we think, and Andreas Dewani taught us this. He said it's two blocks of fabric of a downtown you really need to energize. And that seems to be, right now, I, I think that's, I agree with that from what we've seen. Imagine you have a downtown, a small town, and you could acquire, you know, so many buildings. Let's say you could acquire, you know, 40, 50,000 plus square foot of buildings. And let's say you acquired them top for a million dollars. And uh, and the town's dead as a hammer. I mean, tumbleweed down the middle of the thing, boarded up, or they got vape shops in them, or something. It's just it's it's dead, for all intents and purposes. So we got this million dollars invested. Let's call that that forty thousand square foot. Let's say it took us two million bucks. I mean, uh, two hundred thousand dollars a foot, uh, two hundred dollars a foot to renovate that space. Eight million bucks, right? Forty thousand foot. We paid a million. We renovate for eight million. We got nine million in this. How could we take a, and, and, and we get a certain number of rooms, an event space, and a restaurant? Walk us through kind of how the revenue might work in that, and then hook it to like what the income is as operational, and then when you look at it as a real estate cap rate income. Ooh, that's a lot to unpack. 
So, um, so let's just well, let, let me try. I mean, again, there's not going to be any exacts in this. Uh, I qualify everything we're, I'm about to say. We're exactly right. Ty's going to be a so total I'll, millennial I'll John, here. John can say the word provisional, which means he can say whatever he wants. And <laughs> nobody can question him on it. So that's what I'm going to do. We're going to brainstorm and whiteboard um, here, Ty. No math. Yeah, so whiteboard. So any stat that we put out, you know, you're welcome to correct us on it, and that's okay. So I think one thing that we have to really consider, you know, so many of this at the scale we're talking about from a hospitality standpoint, and, and in, what's typical in a small town from a mom-and-pop standpoint is that any one of these businesses would, would have a single – operator and have to stand on its own so for example the restaurant would have to stand on its own and i think that's that is actually one of the weaknesses i mean it's really hard for a really for an operator uh even if they're good in a small market for a restaurant to stand on its own you have to be really really good marketing back office accounting hr you know, just all the pieces operationally well, savvy. and So you don't have the access to, you know, a, a team, really, you know, and, and, and that gets underappreciated, you know, and, and, and so that's one example. Uh, and then if you think about it, well, there's, there's a lot of people that do Airbnb, you know, in, overnight, in, in small towns and, and do a great job at that. Um, and then there's, there's a lot of venue spaces. But... Rolling all those together in a single operating format gives you it gives you more ability to have an overarching hospitality expression, like a shared services model that fits three different income streams. So, and to John's point, the hotel industry is one of the few. Every all real estate has an operating component to it. I mean, I know one of the one of the quotes that I, I hear often in real estate is that really, especially in commercial real estate, is that an asset is really nothing more than a collection of leases. And that's a really, in, in the context of, of a town and a, and a place that we hope, you know, aspirationally is more than just a portfolio of leases, really it's, it's a portfolio of operators. And so for us, hospitality well, going back, the hotel industry really has some of the most complex operations that the finance industry really sees a way to actually allow you to cap rate or apply a cap rate to those operating incomes. Um, it's more complex than, say, multifamily, for example, where you're, you're leasing apartments. Um, they're just more... And the, the, the banks understand a resort, guys. They understand a hotel with event space and food and beverage. And so we at least have a framework of understanding in the existing capital markets of how to do this. And, and so let's talk through, let's say the restaurant does $2 million a year. Okay. Yeah. Well, so so in the accounting of uh, in from a resort perspective, you know, a lot of your revenue centers are rolled up into one one pro forma, if you will, or one income statement. And um, uh, if we were to do a restaurant here in our town standalone, we could probably expect the profitability of that restaurant to be between eight and ten percent on an industry average standpoint, right? Um, but when you see that in a in a uh, in a hotel or a more 
collected income statement with other revenue cycles, you would see, you start thinking about it differently. It's really a, a revenue center that, that, that generates gross operating profit that then has a shared uh, G&A or, or general administrative cost and property operating expenses and marketing, etc. So it allows you to leverage that differently or thinking about it differently, and it gives you more support for that food and beverage operation. So we're all we're doing here, guys, are who who are listening is really we're we're trying to cast a vision for a different operating model that really could for some for some out there who are really saying, hey, I really want to do something of significance and catalytic in my town. We think we're we're paving a model that that if you are willing to really invest in a platform, can we actually believe in it maybe as much as anything we've ever done. I would say yes. And I mean, if you look aside the road, you know, hotel, uh, Holiday Inn Express, if it's $175,000 a key to build one today, a hundred room hotel is $17.5 million. Okay. And, and we're talking about going into towns where we could build, you know, rooms, a restaurant, and event space for less than that. I mean, think about if you're, let's say your rooms are two ninety five a night, ADR, um, and and you only had fifty rooms. That's a potential fourteen thousand seven fifty if it was well, fully rented. And if you multiply that times three sixty five, that would give you a potential five point three million dollar income. If you do it at, at a say sixty percent occupancy, that still puts it down at three point two million and a fifty percent of your money went out as expenses, that's a million eight. Guys, there's models where it could be between, for the restaurant, food and beverage, the 50-room hotel and the events, it could do two and a half, three million dollars in profit a year. Well, now, if you do that and roll it up, what is that, Ty, at an eight cap? or that's, that's the story. Like, how do we roll these operational incomes up into values because what could you build that was worth thirty-five or forty million dollars in a town of ten thousand or fifteen or twenty thousand? I mean, here in Opelika, we've deeply committed. We're building seven food and beverage concepts. We're building seventy hotel rooms, plus or minus maybe sixty-eight, and three event spaces. It. We're not just saying this. We believe this deeply that there's. It'll be more influential, and impactful than everything we've ever done combined. Well, and the thing that's another thing that's worth thinking about, and I've learned this from the wine industry, um, we this five seven year investment nonsense is not a horizon that makes sense for the longevity and flourishing of our cities. It's just it's short sighted and it's foolish and it's often predatory. If you look out over a long term, let's say you could do this, or you could go build a triple-A brand-new hotel somewhere. Well, if you went and built that brand-new hotel, what's it ever going to be? A hotel. And then, if you built, it's just going to get crappier and become a crappier and crappier hotel. And so they're going to go down and down. Well, if I take and do this model, and let's say I put $40 million in a downtown, or $10 million in a downtown, those buildings are going to be worth more. They're more special. They're more unique every single year. And then because they were adaptive reuse to get there, they can be adaptive reuse again. 
So Ty, hit hit the top of this as we land this first episode, and we'll do more on this topic. But give us a little t- top of the box of the of the puzzle here of what it could look like financially, and then we'll land this in a in in and we'll come back to it again and continue these series. Well, I mean, I think I mean I think we we obviously still have a lot to learn, and um, and I think the management strategy really is what informs. Um, is what's going to inform our future on this is really because right now there's really not a, a true management solution because you have your typical hotel guys, you know, who are generally flag operators. That's one crew, right? You have your um, third party managers that, you know, they that will do boutique or independent properties. Um, and there's some out there that really do food and beverage well and do the venue space well. But they, um, you know, they, in terms of working in a living, breathing, existing assets in a historic downtown, that's a little bit of a different breed. Um, and then you have what I call more of a, it's kind of like an Airbnb plus, right? Yeah, it's right. really a property management. It's, it's really hospitality light kind of thing where you get a right. code and some room cleaning. Exactly. So, so like there's really, that's the first thing is defining the management strategy um has to needs a lot of intention and and we're still working through that even with our team to to understand the best and appropriate thing so but to john's point john just laid out some gross kind of like a gross revenue way to think about it or gross potential revenue um but i think i i do think that uh like we're we're working on a deal now that that is you know just from a programmatic standpoint it's probably going to have around 40 keys we believe that the, the ADR can, on average, uh, can support around $300 a room. It actually has limited food and beverage, but it's got the potential to be a, basically a wedding factory. Um, and their average, you know, on average, their total gross revenue from a, from an event is about $15,000. But because they, they don't really control the food and bev, I mean, their mark, their total gross margin or gross operating profit on the events is, is about 80%. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 you know, that's a huge revenue driver. From the room side, you know, you know, on the $300, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of, uh, I mean, hospitality guys on this call can check this, but, you know, just from a rooms department and division, generally 50 to 60% margin on that, you know, is, 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 uh, seems to be what industry would say is appropriate. Um, and then those roll into your total gross operating profit for, for the, for the property. Um, and then you have GNA property expense, um, or general administration, um, which is your overarching salaries for the shared services. You have marketing, um, you've got property operations you know that's your your maintenance your ongoing you'll have reserve and replacement um you'll have it you'll have all these really general overhead expenses um but hopefully you'll get to around you know between 20 or 20 percent plus net operating income for the property and and i think i think you're you can generate you know four to five million dollars on you know a programmatic you know, 40 keys, a great venue space, and some food and beverage. And the question is, what's that worth? 
to a town and a place unless that worked to an investor. Four million dollars, if you can do that for fifteen million dollars, you get you start seeing the math of what we're talking about. And not only that, I mean I think I think what what goes unsaid is that from a place making or even a town perspective is what what does it do as a platform? Like what does it do for for almost for brand recognition? I mean if Let's say I'm a I'm a little shopkeeper owner, and I have the aspiration to start my own, my little business in a town. Um, all of a sudden, when you start to identify with somebody who's doing hospitality with excellence, um, you know, and you see that, like that's why I believe it's almost like it could be a catalyst, just like our smokestacks. Right. Right. Well, it because, certainly can because if you're successful running something like this, if you think shops retail yoga studio everything's not going to pop up around it you're crazy right i mean it's so of course it will so guys you kind of get this is this is part one of a multi-part series but you kind of see the box top of what we're talking about why we believe diffuse hospitality scattered hotels or horizontal hotels when they're under sophisticated real estate development with food and beverage and events and love and care can be a powerful force for saving communities I'm excited to explore this with you, and as we go through it, we um, we have empathy because we suffer, and we put our own dollars out and work hard in our community, and we have authority because we've been doing it over 25 years, and um, we're committed to saving our small town and helping you guys save the places you care about. Guys, thank you for your time today. Look forward to having this conversation more.